David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. The 17th century, at the end of the day, if we talk about the 16th century as being kind of revolution and transformation, and we talk about the 18th century as being a century of revelation, the 17th century and the way to access it is through the concept of community. The 17th century is about communities. There are individuals we're going to look at, but if we understand that, then we can give ourselves a structure by which we can access what's going on in the 17th as we move from one side of reality to another. With all of these centuries of the modern era, the world is a fundamentally different place in 1700 than it was in 1600 over the course of the period we're going to look at. As you know, those of you who've studied ancient history and medieval history will know that, yes, there are wars, there are movements, but the basic understanding of the world doesn't change very fast. Yeah? If you took a guy in a time machine from the Roman Empire and you brought him to, say, the Middle Ages and the Crusades, he might not be aware of all the political ideas going on, but the world is not going to be incomprehensible to him. If you took that same individual and brought him to our age, it would completely bake his noodle. He would have no idea what he's even looking at. And what he'd be looking at is the internet. And the 17th century is a period where we do see that kind of major, major, major shift. And before we can talk about this concept of communities, and I know that that's going to sound boring to some of you because it's a bit of a yawn word community, but you will understand why this is such a useful feature of the 17th century. In order to go into that, I need to go into some of the background issues. As you know, the first talk of any series we have to background things historically. We cannot understand what's happening in Jewish history if we do not understand what's happening in the world. Yes? So we need to look at history. So some of this will be familiar to you. The 17th century. I don't need to draw a timeline. It starts in 1601. It goes to 1700. But I am, of course, going to draw the map. All right? Here's the map. And here's Spain, Portugal, here's Italy, here's Greece, here's Turkey, here's Egypt, here's North Africa, and here, Mitte Blue, is the land, that's the land, actually it's not very clear, that's the land of Israel, yeah? And of course, we do have, by the time we open this century, we of course, as well as, you know, Asia, all the way from in to India and China, the world is now kind of connected on those axes through trade, through diplomacy. We also now have, of course, the New World, North and South America, that not to scale, but are sitting on the other side of the Atlantic. Now, our focus, certainly in this talk tonight, but for the most part, our focus, of course, will be on the Jewish world. And of course the Jewish world itself is expanding because Jews are living wherever the known world is. 
but the concentration is really this area, Eurasia, Europe and the, and the Near East. And the first thing we need to understand about the 17th century, and one of the major things that's going on in the background, in other words, I can't spend too much time on this, you need to understand that this is going on in the background of just about everything we're talking about tonight. All of these things are, but this one is going on. And it's called, an event called, the Thirty Years' War. Yeah, put your hand up if you've heard of the Thirty Years' War. Outstanding. Fantastic. You probably all score at least a five or six on the Thirty Years' War. We're not going into it in full detail, but it is important to understand. First of all, the Thirty Years' War was probably the bloodiest conflict in Europe at any time, basically before the 20th century. It involved numerous, numerous states. It was effectively a world war that was happening inside Europe. Everybody was against everybody eventually. And it, the cost in human life and misery was immense. Millions and millions of people died. This is the 17th century. This is not the 16th, this is the 17th century. And what was the basic war about? What was the basic war about? I mean, it eventually, during the course of the Thirty Years' War, it kind of transitioned from being about religion to being about politics. Yep, especially, you know, once France comes in on the side of Sweden late in the war, that's already a political decision, not a religious one. But what was the war fundamentally about? about the Reformation. It was a reaction to the Reformation that had effectively happened a hundred years before. So a century after Luther, we're already mired in a deep war. This is exactly equivalent to what happens in the Islamic world between Shia and Sunni. It was the Catholic world of Europe versus the Protestant world of Europe, particularly the Lutheran world. And by the time we get to the 17th century, entire states had adopted Lutheranism, Lutheranism or Protestant Christianity as their official religion. The Holy Roman Empire, which is definitively Roman Catholic, is still going and there are huge wars and it bursts out into this political dimension as well. If we look, for example, here's France. Now here is what is going to become Germany, but it is in fact still a whole lot of principalities and then over here we're going to have uh, Bohemia and Hungary and we're going to have the Polish-Lithuanian Empire that's the kingdom that is still going and here's Russia. Sweden is up here, they're also getting involved. So without going into too many details, what emerges from the 30-year war is basically this. by the time you get to the Treaty of Westphalia, and the Treaty of Westphalia is in 1648. Very important year for the context of this series, like this course, I can tell you, for a number of different reasons. But 1648 is the Treaty of Westphalia where basically everybody calmed down and sat down and divided up Europe and they said, okay, these states are going to be Protestant, these states are going to be Catholic and Gandhi. Let's try and enter into the modern era as proper Christian gentlemen. The victors of the Thirty Years, no one was really a victor, but certain countries came out 
quite okay from the Thirty Years' War with their economies and their military and their overall agendas intact. And so from the second half of the 17th century, from 1650 onwards, we're going to see more or less the rise of three important powers. They're going to take a very, very big part in the stage of the next couple of centuries. Those powers are, of course, well, France, yes, uh, but France was going to be my second choice. The country that came out, in my opinion, with the best conditions, both from the Treaty of Westphalia and, and what they call the Union of Utrecht, was Holland. And Holland came out basically confident and protected in itself as a Protestant country. Spain was going to leave it alone now. It was given conditions and uh, circumstances that were going to enable the Dutch to consolidate this big, powerful economic machine that they were grinding through trade right around the world and their new invention, the stock market and capitalization of, in, of, of, of all sorts of projects. We have the Dutch. France came out well. France came out well, and that then was a launch pad for the entire career over the course of the second half of the 17th century of Louis XIV. France remained Catholic, and it didn't undergo any kind of real uh, reformation of its government. That wasn't going to happen for another century for France, and when it happened, it happened big time. Louis XIV was a completely autocratic ruler who centralized everything around him. But France emerged with a, probably the most powerful military in Europe, uh, the biggest economy, and a, a definitive actor on the stage. So the next century or so, next century and a half, are really going to belong to France. And the third power that didn't necessarily get involved in the Thirty Years' War but emerges from it with the conditions and circumstances that is going to allow it to rise in the world stage, and that, of course, is England. And England was afforded that because of the exhaustion that had happened in Europe in the first half of the 17th century, which is why in the second half, in the late 1600s, we start to see England take over far-flung colonies around the world that had been formerly owned by either the Dutch or the Portuguese, or the Spanish. Now, by this time, remember, remember that it was only at the end of the 15th century, in the, late, in the 1490s, that Spain and Portugal carved up the world between them. A century later, they were already on the wane. And by the time you get to the middle of the 17th century, they're, they're important, but they're not really draw, calling the shots anymore. They're no longer the driving agencies of what is happening in Europe. Now it's about Holland, it's about France, and it's about England. So we need to bear in mind that all of that is happening in the background. And now, I need to discuss for a couple of minutes, and we need to be very, very careful, because I can only spend two minutes on this. 
as a background factor, but you would be aware that what I'm about to say could take us into long and far-reaching discussions that will distract us and I'll never get through the 17th century. But obviously, the big thing that is going to happen in the 17th century, I'm talking world history now, that is going to change everything and it's always in the background of everything we're going to talk about. Galileo, Descartes, some people would actually say Descartes, Galileo. I said Galileo because Galileo is a bit older than Descartes. But really, what we recognize as the Enlightenment really starts with Descartes. Why Descartes? Why does it start with Descartes? Well, obviously he's a philosopher, but why does it start with, there have been philosophers before him, what was it about Descartes that causes him to be recognized as the beginning of the modern era of the enlightenment of the entire way in which humanity now thinks? He's a rationalist, but others have been rationalists. What's famous about him? What, what was different about Descartes' rationalism? He individual. He did stress the individual. Correct. Descartes wanted to completely deconstruct all knowledge that we had and start again. Building up human knowledge only from what I can absolutely know. In other words, I can prove it either mathematically or it's an incontestable fact. And to build it up. And he stripped away all of the things that we had received in, from all of history. All the ideas, all the knowledge, nothing. And began with one fundamental proposition. The only thing that I can be sure of, in other words, I can't even trust my senses. Even the senses, sight, hearing, have all been found to be unreliable at some point, what is the only piece of knowledge that is not entirely unreliable? Well, not entirely, but it is not unreliable in any sense. That I exist. The, well, how do I know I exist? The only thing I can know for sure is that someone is thinking, I'm thinking about this, cogito, ergo sum, therefore I am. That's the only thing, I'm, I'm, someone is doing this thinking. Therefore, someone must exist. Which means you were right in a sense. It brings it back to the self. It's in a sense. It's called the creation of the self, but it's also the creation of empirical knowledge. It's creation of what we're going to come to call modern science, modern mathematics, modern rationalism. All built from Descartes. A massive grounding moment. And I said Galileo because Galileo... <laughs> We'll have more to say about Galileo, but, but, but Galileo is astonishing. Because Galileo took the theories that had burst in the scene a hundred years before of Copernicus and proved them using what? A telescope. Hello, there's moons going around Jupiter. Oh. Now, the third figure that we would talk about, 
and who's generally regarded as, when you think enlightenment, this is whose picture they will show you, Newton. Isaac Newton. By the end of the century that we're going to look at, Newton has published Principia Mathematica. Now you're sitting there going, a maths book in Latin. What does that matter? Because Newton demonstrated that he could explain mathematically what's going on with the planets, what's going on with the earth and the sun, and it's all about this concept called gravity. And he was also able to explain the fundamental laws of motion and mechanics. Remember that when the Americans went to the moon in the 1960s, they did it based on equations that were fundamentally based on Newtonian mechanics. You don't need 20th century physics for that. You don't need, you need Einstein to create an atom bomb, but you don't need Einstein, you don't need Bohr in order to create a rocket that will go to the moon. That's Newtonian. So Newton completely blitzed open our understanding of physics of the world. He wasn't the first person to notice gravity. People realize that things fall if you don't hold them up. But he explained it mathematically. And if we explain those things about the planets, then there's nothing that the human mind cannot understand. That is the key to the Enlightenment. That is the moment at which mathematics begins to overtake words. It's a big moment in human history. And of course, the fourth one that we would talk about would be Leibniz. And Leibniz, who at the same time as Newton, basically invented calculus and integral differentiation. And from there, once you have those things in place, then you are able to explain and understand. Oh, that's the springboard for 18th and 19th century mathematics that is going to lead to the world in which we live. Now, <coughs> those things, I have to tell you, the Thirty Years' War, the rise of Holland, France and England, and the Enlightenment, and, and, it, and it, it kind of hurts me to say this, but they're not specifically Jewish events. <laughs> there were a few non-Jews involved. But they, all of them, impacted on the history we're going to talk about in this course. So I need to lay them down at the very beginning. We'll refer to them. Everything I'm talking about tonight is really to set the conditions for the big dramas that are going to happen. But for us to really understand those dramas, rather than just see them as stories from comic books, we need to understand what conditions they're working against. Now, moving a little locally to Jewish history and some of the background events that are happening in Jewish history, Two things I want to refer to. There are many things, and we're going to look at them, but there's two things I want to specifically refer to. And one is that there are now, there are now a lot of Jews living in Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's going to get more. It's going to get a little crowded there, in fact, but it's going to be more. But already we've got some sizable, we've got tens, if not hundreds, we've got hundreds of thousands of Jews, maybe as much as well over a million. You know, historians are always trying to work these numbers out. No one has the exact figures. But there's already a lot of Jews living. There's no Jews living in Russia. 
that Russia went off limits. But there are Jews living in what is today the Ukraine, um, Belarus, Poland, Hungary, Bohemia, which is kind of where Czechoslovakia is, this whole area. Yeah? Why is it called the Pale of Um uh, well, th that's a different historical circumstance that has more to do with the 18th, 19th century where the Russian government allowed Jews to live in certain corridors of settlement. Um, and I believe the word pale is just like another, f it's a fancy border. word. It means a border, yeah. It's like an area, a boarded off area. Yeah, 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 yeah. Academics love to use words that no people understand. But Everybody just calls it the Pale of But the Pale of Settlement is not what, the Pale of Settlement is not where we're at now. Here Jews are living all over, basically where we can, we can find a space. There are still, part, by the time we open this century, there are still parts of Europe that may as well be as strange to Jews as America, because they've never been there. Of course, when I was listing those countries, of course, Lithuania as well. In fact, Lithuania is extremely important. Now, this whole area, in terms of, particularly in Poland, was governed, Jew, Jewish communities were governed by their own autonomous institutions, in most cases, out of which arose what can only really be described as a Jewish parliament. It was one of the first, what we might call, parliaments in Europe. And it arose out of the hundreds, if not thousands, of Jewish communities spread right across here. It started at the end of the 16th century and it was called the Council of the Four Lands. Greater Poland, Little Poland, Volhynia, Ruthenia, areas that we don't call them by that today, but it covers that area. And every community and every major organization would send delegates to the Council of the Four Lands and they would sit twice a year at the big fairs, commercial fairs that were had in Europe and they would decide things on behalf of all of the Jews of this entire of Europe basically. Sometimes even making decisions on things that didn't even necessarily have to do with their particular remit. Communities over here would ask the Council of the Four Lands to intervene in their issues, to make decisions for them. The Council of the Four Lands became the most respected judicial body in the Jewish world. Sometimes even Sephardic communities in Turkey and Egypt were asking questions of the Council of the Four Lands because the rabbis that sat on that council were only the greatest rabbis in Europe. Uh, the Council of the Four Lands made interesting decisions that affected Jewish life in different ways. One of the things, because, because the 16th century has changed and thrown up so much that we are now in almost new economic conditions and Jews are living and working in places that they haven't been able to before. We're not yet at emancipation, we're not at full liberation, but in some areas Jews are enabled to get into um, positions within civic society and within the commerce of the day that require new sets of conditions. One of the things is, is that, as you know, Jews cannot lend each other at interest. Yep.
you're familiar with that concept, it's called rebit. So, one of the important um, fixes for that is a concept called heter iska. Anyone familiar with heter iska? Okay, well it's a big topic in rabbinics, but it basically means that you and the person you're lending money to enter into a type of joint venture from which the investor takes a certain amount of capital and so on. So it's a, it's a different way of constructing a business so that it's not, strictly speaking, alone. This kind of, of uh, facility uh, was the sorts of things that the Council of the Four Lands had to develop and implement, but predominantly they were a democratic parliament. The records that we have of the Council of the Four Lands and a number of their decisions not only show the things they discussed and they decided upon, but also even showed the votes and the numbers. And this went right up into the middle of the 18th century. So during the 17th century, the Council of the Four Lands is in the background of what we're going to talk about. And there's a few events in this century where you will be sitting there going, well, what did the Council of the Four Lands say about that? And then there's one other thing I want to talk about as a background issue before I launch into what I'm going to talk about tonight. And that is, and if you would remember this from the 16th century, you would know that towards the end of the 16th century, there was a thought revolution that happened in the land of Israel that emerged from Sfat, a Kabbalistic revolution the teachings of Isaac Luria. Now Isaac Luria passed away in 1572 and he had a profound effect on anyone he taught. But him passing away in 1572, not having written anything down, not having written anything down, meant that we have to explain how it is that by the middle of the 17th century, Lurianic ideas are washing over this entire area. How does that happen? And that happens because of primarily, primarily two students of Luria. There were more, but primarily two, who were very different. One was a rabbi called Israel Sarug. You don't need to write this down. I mean, you can write it down, but I do have hopefully notes, I have notes, and hopefully there'll be a reflection of what I'm talking about. Israel Sarug. Now, Israel Sarug claimed that he was in Tzfat and studied from the Ari. We're not entirely sure about that. But he did definitely have access to a lot of the early Lurianic material. And he went to Italy. And in Italy, he started talking to other Kabbalists. He started telling them about the Lurianic ideas, the idea of Tzimtzum, the contraction of God, the idea of the smashing of the vessels that cannot contain the light of God, the idea of rebuilding, the idea of Tikkun Olam, the very, very complex readings of the Zohar and the Sfirot, and the way in which the human person is a microcosm of divine energy that participates with God in the recreation of the world, and that everything can be mystically explained by understanding the various combinations of the Sfirot. These are very, very complex and big ideas. And he starts talking to people in Italy about this. And people go, oh, that's really interesting. And then they start talking to others. And it eventually, not long after that, finds its way into Germany. And a little bit after that, by the 18th century, it's found its way into Eastern Europe. 
and already by the middle of the 17th century, some of the Lurianic Kabbalistic texts based on the teachings of Sarug are beginning to be printed. Now I know some of you are sitting there going, oh, I can't really see why that's significant, but you will. I will be coming back to that point. People are starting to print Kabbalistic books, which are even a bit ooga-booga in the middle of the 17th century. And the other primary student of the RE is a rabbi called Chaim Vital. Chaim bin Yosef Vital Calabresi. And he was born in Tzfat. And he met the RE when he met Luria when he was 30. And he was actually studying alchemy at the time. He met Luria in around 1570. And Luria taught him almost exclusively in the two years before Luria died. And downloaded to him this phenomenal vision of God, of the universe, of everything. Unlike Sarug, unlike Israel Sarug, Chaim Vital was extremely protective of those teachings. He went to Egypt a few years later, didn't last long in Egypt, and ended up in Damascus where he lived basically for the next 50 years, writing copious notes about what he heard from Isaac Luria, and compiled them into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of folios, manuscript folios of notes. And he wouldn't let anyone see them. And one day, he got sick. And it was, they bribed his brother. This is, I'm not telling you mythical stories. This is exactly what happened. They bribed his brother to be able to access the locked box under his bed. He kept it under his bed. But, you know, he's there, oh, I'm sick. And they bribed his brother to let them in, open the box, and they took out the manuscripts and they employed a hundred scribes to write out as many copies of all of these thousands of pages of notes as they could and then they put them back. That was the first of the releases of Chaim Vital's Lurianic doctrines. And then when he died, he commanded, he ordered in his will that they, these manuscripts would be buried with him. And then they gathered a whole lot of rabbis together and they stood by the graveside and asked permission to be able to open up the grave and take out the manuscripts. And they convinced themselves that they had that permission. And that's what they did. Now, Chaim Vital's Lurianic Kabbalah, which is far, far more complex and in some ways more deep than Sarug's, very quickly had a great effect over this area, Egypt, North Africa, and Iraq, and the land of Israel. This is the concentration of Vital's influence. Vitalian Kabbalah does not make its way into Europe for quite some time. Now, I'm telling you those things and you're going to go, that sounds like a very, very obscure recondite point. But it's going to have great significance, and I, hopefully I'll be returning to that. All right. I want to start talking about communities. <gasps> Ouch. Ouch. Wow. I don't have long to talk about the many things I need to talk about tonight. But everybody clear now where we've grounded the 17th century and when we're talking about? 
So the first community I want, I'm going to go geographically, so I'm going to go east to west. Now there are a number of significant communities already established in Eastern Europe. If I was to name two, what would they be? So one we discussed when we looked at the 16th century, if you recall, and we looked at Poland, we looked at the rise and the eventual influence of the community of Krakow, which became very big during the 16th century. So that by the time we opened the 17th century, Krakow is still a very impressive community, commercially and particularly rabbinically and spiritually. But it's kind of overshadowed by another community that if you were anywhere in this side of Europe, this would be the community you would regard as the most significant Jewish community in Europe. And it is, of course, Vilna, <laughs> not yet. It's, it's Prague. Vilna's, Vilna's day is yet to come. Vilna's day is, Vilna is more an 18th century story. It's Prague at the beginning of the 17th century. And we've just had Rabbi Yehuda Lev, the Maharal of Prague, has been the rabbi. He dies early in the century. But Prague also, what else is unique about Prague? What else? Huh? Well, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. But the Golem and the Maharal are really a 16th century story. And we discussed that in the 16th century. But what is significant about Prague? What has been significant about Prague since the last, in the last quarter of the 16th and is still the case? Who remembers? It is correct. Rudolf II, re, who is the Holy Roman Empire, relocated the capital of the Holy Roman Empire to Prague. So it really is at the center of things and its Jewish community is on crack. Or, st or steroids actually over there. Now, the Maharal of Prague, who I'm not going into now, we discussed that length in the 16th and it would really take us away from where we are now. The Maharal of Prague, this astonishingly overwhelming figure, but he had a few significant students one of whom is the first person I want to talk about tonight. And I'm going to tell you something interesting about Prague that is going to make you go, ah. Oh. And just so you know, you don't have to be scared about going, ah, oh, because I'll tell you what it is when I get to it. All right? Now, so you don't have to be sitting there going, oh, is that the fact that's going to make me go, ah? Oh? No, it's another thing. He hasn't told us yet. One of the great students of the Maharal of Prague and once again, if we have such a limited time to talk about the 17th century, everybody I'm talking about is important. It was a man called, and I mentioned him in the 16th. I mentioned him in the 16th because he's very, very interesting. And his name is David Guns. Remember that his cousin Joachim Guns had gone with rally to uh, to America and so on yeah but this is David Guns now David Guns published a book at the beginning of the 17th century and it's a book called Magen David all right Magen David the shield of David referring to the star of David obviously using his own name now Magen David is a book written by a very learned rabbi, a student of the Maharal of Prague, on astronomy. On astronomy. 
And in this book, in the opening pages of this book, David Gunz tells you that sometime earlier, about a century earlier, there had been this brilliant, brilliant, amazing, off-the-scale, incredible person called, called Copernicus. Now that itself is remarkable. Remember what, how Copernicus was treated by the church in the 16th century, yeah? And generally, conservative rabbis also kind of sided with the church on those issues. What's the problem? What's the pro what was the problem? What was the problem? Why did Galileo, for example, get in trouble for advocating Copernican theory? What's the problem? Because the Earth is the centre of the universe. No, that's what, that, that, that's, 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 that's what they were saying. Yes. But what's the problem? Someone comes along and says, I don't think the sun goes around the Earth. I think the Earth goes around the sun. What's the problem for if you're a conservative religious figure? What's your, in the Christian world, or maybe even in the Jewish world, what's your problem with that? It's what? Heretical. Why? I'm asking why. That's one of their arguments, but the main argument is that there are certain scriptural verses that seem to indicate that the sun is going around the earth. One, for example, in Joshua, where Joshua tells the sun to stand still, there are other scriptures. Now, that won't be a problem for Spinoza in his Tractatus, but we're not looking at that yet. We're still in the early 17th century. The other problem was, and I mean... Copernicus had the mathematics. And as I said in the 16th, Tycho Bray tried in Denmark, tried to argue against Copernicus and created, through phenomenally astute and accurate observations, created a model where he quetched like this to prove that Copernicus was wrong, but the solar system would still make sense, but he didn't. And then it was Bray's student Kepler who welded Copernicus's ideas together with Tycho Brahe's mathematics and astronomical observations to basically create the picture that we have today. The Earth goes around the sun. So when David Gunz comes out and talks about Copernicus in such amazing terms, that itself is already telling us that in Prague already, the Jewish world was opening up to what was potentially going to be the Enlightenment. But, says Gans, but, says Gans, at the end of a whole page of telling you how amazing Copernicus was, after a century of the church saying that Copernicus was the biggest fool and heretic and awful person, after a page of saying how brilliant he was, but, he's wrong. He's wrong because, even though all the maths works out, at the end of the day, we don't have, uh, we, we have a revelation that tells us differently. Still couldn't make that final jump to say, well, maybe that's telling us something about the nature of revelation. Whereas in other parts of Europe, as we will see, once the mathematics shows you something, once you can prove it, once empirical evidence supports it, once rationalistic science tells you that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it is. You can jump up and down and say the word, the Bible, the Bible a hundred times. It's not going to help you. It's not going to help the earth not to go around the sun. Now, 
What's amazing about David Gantz is that he wrote this book called Magen David, and in fact, he's in Prague. And Prague, Prague, the community of Prague had a symbol. And it's a symbol that looked like this. And they called it the Magen David. Prague, 17th century, is the first time that we are using this as a Jewish symbol. It appears on David Gunz's grave, on his tombstone. It is the first time the Magen David has ever been used on a tombstone. That's David Gunz's burial site, which is still, you can still see it in Prague today. People think, oh, the Magen David's been a Jewish symbol forever. No, only since the 17th century and only since Prague. And it first appears on David Gans's tombstone. Although it had been known traditionally within Prague itself that it was something that they were kind of, you know, using a little bit. But in 1648 was the Battle of Prague. What else did I say happened in 1648? West Treaty of Westphalia, yeah. So at the very, very end of the Thirty Years' War, Sweden invaded Bohemia. Right at the, in fact, not just right at the end of the war, while they were having peace discussions, Sweden invaded um, Bohemia. And they basically did it to loot all the art from Rudolf II's castle. I kid you not. And that art got flogged all over Europe for the next few centuries. This is not a lesson on the history of the art of the modern era. I wish it was, but it's not. But that's a fascinating fact. In recognition of the Jewish community's assistance in the defense of Prague, the Jewish community stood as one on the walls of the city of Prague to help defend the city. It was a unique moment and one that we need to think about um, in, other, in relation to other things I want to talk about tonight, gosh, and we'll be here till 11 at this rate, but in recognition of that, the emperor gave the community of Prague a flag. And on that flag is a star of David, a yellow star of David on a red background. It was a great symbol of Prague. I think they still even have it in the community of Prague. And that is the moment where really the Star of David, the Magen David, became the symbol for Jewish communities and for Jewish life. It's fascinating. They all emerged from Prague. All right. But I'm going to move on from Prague. I'm going to move on from Prague. I'm going to go, look, look, I mean, I was going to go to Italy, but just let me go quickly via Salonika. Remember I said that in the 16th century, Salonika was, you wanted to be in Salonika. Salonika, which had tens of thousands of Sephardic Jews come into it at the beginning of the 16th as a result of the expulsion. And throughout the 16th century, Salonika was the place. It had not only the greatest rabbis and spiritual leaders, it also had the greatest... Who remembers? Who remembers? It's only a couple of weeks ago. huh? Uh, the greatest doctors. The greatest doctors, they said, anywhere in the world, the best doctors were the Jewish doctors. The Jewish doctors in Saloniki were regarded as the greatest doctors in the world because they were taking the best medical advice and training that they could get in Europe 
together with the best medical training and advice and wisdom that you could get from the East. But they were seriously, look, but by the time you get to the 17th century, the community of Salonika is in decline. There were just too many difficult economic factors. Obviously, there were the, one of the major industries there was the spinning of wool. Uh, that, remember that Saloniki was in the Ottoman Empire, so the demand literally was one of those cases where they could not meet demand. And as a result of that, they collapsed. Even there were communal leaders that were even summoned to Istanbul to be executed because of the Jewish community because of economic circumstances, because they couldn't meet quotas. Um, but Saloniki is seeing a decline. But I'm, on my, I'm only using Saloniki on my way. But, Sal but Saloniki is going to become important for us later in the course. Because you know who turns up there. Then we're going to go to Italy. Now, Italy, at the time, you remember that the 16th century, Italy, very impressive communities that were Ferrara and Modena. And these were, you know, at the high, during the Renaissance, these communities were very impressive. Jews were contributing to the Renaissance. They were at the height of what was going on. Now, just too quickly, two figures I want to look at because the first, the first figure is just too interesting not to. It comes from the Jewish community of, the Jewish community of Crete. Yeah? And his name is Joseph Solomon Del Medigo. Now, Del Medigo, I'm, I'm mentioning Del Medigo briefly because Del Medigo is so fascinating. Had he lived a bit longer, he really, really would have taken part in the whole Enlightenment project. But he is a proto-Enlightenment figure who is also at the same time a classically trained rabbi and a spiritual leader. And he is a very, very learned rabbi. And he basically goes, as a young man, goes from Crete and he makes his way to Italy because Italy at the time well, the Venetians, the Venetians at the time, ruled over Crete. Crete at the time, which we think of today as a Greek island, sorry, I'm going the wrong way, is actually ruled from Venice. Yeah? So he goes to Italy, and he goes to near Venice, to the amazing community and town of Padua. Who's been to Padua? Very good. So you know what is at Padua? coffee shop, there's a few coffee shops, there's the university, the leading tower of Pisa is not in Padua, it's in, it's in uh, Pisa. Now, he goes, to, he goes to Padua. I, I heard that it leans so far. Yeah, that goes to maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, in Padua is the University of Padua. And who's teaching? At the University of Padua. Galileo. Now, Del Medigo, who we know, listen, anyone who studies rabbinic literature knows the Yashar Mekandir. He's called the Yashar Mekandir, Yosef Shlomo Del Medigo of Crete, or of Kandia in Crete. People know him for his books. He wrote books on Kabbalah. He wrote books on a range of things. But they don't realize in the wider context who he actually was. He went to study mathematics and astronomy at the University of Padua and he writes in his autobiography in great detail about the classes he took 
during the semesters, if you like, of 1609 and 1610 with Galileo Galilei. And he even writes there that he was given the special privilege in 1610 of being allowed to use Galileo's telescope. Now Galileo had only invented his telescope in 1608-1609. So this is very, very early on. There are rabbinic Jews and people who are going to go and influence the Jewish world who are sticking their nose right in Galileo's business and seeing what's going on there. And yet the Yashar Mikandi Adel Medigo is someone that we know has no problem writing books on Lurianic Kabbalah because he met Saruk. And he, he writes books on Lurianic Kabbalah. He's one of the great disseminators of this. He did not see a conflict. Lurianic thought was so revolutionary that it was seen simply as a whole new corridor of human understanding, as was the telescope, as was the new mathematics, as was the other invention that was just beginning to come into people's minds. And that was, of course, that would become bigger in the 17th century, was the opposite of the telescope. It was, of course, the microscope. Yes, that was exactly, exactly. You need a range of lenses. But... That wasn't seen as a conflict. In fact, Delmedigo defended Kabbalah against a book written by his great-grandfather against Kabbalah. So these are interesting people. The other person that I just from Italy is Leon Modena. And Leon Modena is a very different type of person, also deeply interested in Enlightenment ideas, such as they are, but he is an anti-Kabbalist. He also has got a very, very interesting autobiography. I don't know if any of you are ever going to read it. It's called Chaye Yehuda. And in Chaye Yehuda, he writes amazingly, one of the first like really honest accounts of a spiritual leader of the modern era, where he writes about, he was the rabbi of the town, he was hugely learned, people still study books, he was a very, very high level scholar. But he had a problem, he struggled with gambling. He had a gambling addiction, which is fascinating. It's fascinating not just that he had one, but it's also fascinating that he writes about it. And it's one of the earliest kind of autobiographical accounts of how a person struggles with addiction. Extremely interesting if you get a chance to read it. So, but Leo Medina is going to come back into our course a few times. And unlike Shlomo del Medigo, he wrote against Kabbalah. He thought that the Zohar was a complete forgery. He thought that all of the Kabbalistic ideas were complete innovations. They were wrong. Now, here's the thing. So long as you didn't really transgress or deny any of the fundamental principles of Judaism, you're allowed to say that. You're allowed to say you don't think Kabbalah is truth. You're allowed to say that this is a recent innovation. The mainstream of Jewish thought in the world today, as of the last 500 years, has been that Kabbalah is a mainstream revelation of the Jewish world. It is a part of Torah. It is an authentic 
part of the unfolding of the Jewish people's divine revelation in the world. But there have at various times been people that have held out against that. And, Morden and they always turn to Modena because Modena's book on Ari Nohem, on the whole concept of Kabbalah and where he thinks it came from and what's wrong with it, still talks to modern readers who don't like Kabbalah. But once again, these figures could only appear in the 17th century as they are. Now, however, if Prague was the Prague in Eastern Europe, what was the big community in Western Europe? So big, in fact, and powerful and influential as a Jewish community that it's kind of sometimes called the Jewish capital of Western Europe in the 17th century. Which city has the most impressive Jewish and influential and powerful Jewish community in Western Europe? It's Frankfurt. Frankfurt is so significant that all, all first of all, all monies that were collected in Jewish communities right across Western Europe that were collected for the purpose of supporting the Jewish communities of the land of Israel. Remember how important that became? We talked about that in the 16th century, the establishment of the idea that communities would send money to the land of Israel to support the community there. All monies collected in Western Europe were collated in Frankfurt and then sent on from Frankfurt. So it kind of had this symbolic economic hold but Frankfurt was already producing scholars and men of commerce. It was a very powerful community. But they underwent something in the year 1614 that was incredible. Frankfurt, in, in around 1612-1613, the Jewish community was becoming so successful and they were taking so, so much business that the new rising middle class of the burghers were starting to complain that the Jews were taking too much business and they were starting to make other kinds of complaints against the city council under a guy called Fettmilch, Vincent Fettmilch. Now Fettmilch got his group together and they seized the gates of the city and they sacked the council. And then the emperor told them they all had to calm down and go back home and they didn't and they started rioting in the streets and then they found out that the town council had misappropriated the taxes from the Jews so the Jews against their will got involved in this dispute it's all fully documented and so they went to the Judengas they went to the basically effectively the ghetto of Frankfurt where nearly 1500 Jews lived yeah hundreds and hundreds of families and the Fetmilch, it's called the Fetmilch Uprising. And they went to the uh, Jewish ghetto and they drove out every single Jew from the city. They didn't kill them. They drove them into the cemetery. And then they went back to the ghetto and they looted everything. They destroyed the synagogues and they looted the houses. By imperial decree over the next few months, the ringleaders of the rebellion were rounded up, Fetmilch included, and at the head of them, and publicly executed in the main square in Frankfurt. And the Jewish community who'd spent the last few months escaping, some went to Hanau, some went to Hamburg, other places around Germany, 
all came back and in a great procession on the 20th of Adar marched back into the ghetto where they did the first of what became known as the Purim of the Frankfurt ghetto. So they did come back and they did reconstruct the community and they reconstructed the synagogues. Following which, the, by imperial decree, there was an, a stone imperial eagle placed on the gates of the ghetto with a sign saying that the ghetto is under imperial protection. Astonishing. And Frankfurt's the only place in Europe that happened. That is why the Fetmilch uprising was the last major anti-Semitic incident in Germany until the rise of the National Socialists. That's astonishing. That's nearly three, that's well over 300 years. Unless anyone can name a massacre or a pogrom that happened in Germany from 1614 to 1930 or until Kristallnacht, they can't because it didn't happen. Phenomenal story that happened with the Frankfurt Gate. So these are, these are ways in which the identities and, and, and uh, characters of communities were established. When we talk, for example, at the end of the 18th, if we go forward 200 years and we talk about the most famous son of the Frankfurt Ghetto, ghetto 200 years later, who am I talking about at the end of the 18th century, the most famous person to come out of the... Uh, Rothschild. So, so you realize that Rothschild is not coming. He's coming from the Frankfurt Ghetto, a, a, a community with a massive history. If anyone goes to Frankfurt today and you go through the, the cemetery and you look at the gravestones or you look at the, go and visit the Utengars, have a look at the museum, you're looking at an incredible community. Now, the next community I want to talk about quickly. Oh my gosh. Obviously, if we're going west, if we're going west, then I'm going to talk about Amsterdam. Now, as you know, the Jewish community of Amsterdam starts relatively late. Why? Mm. Because it was under the control of Spain for much of the 16th century. Once the Dutch were able to throw off Spanish control. And by the way, just for those who are sitting here going, oh, I don't understand why that would be a problem. Why would that be a problem? Hellosville. <laughs> you're not allowed to be a Jew in Spain. And not only are you not allowed to be a Jew in Spain, you're not allowed to be a Jew in Spanish territory anywhere. And when I say those words, I mean what they say. You're not allowed to be a Jew. It's not like you can be a Jew, but we're going to kick your butt every day. You're not allowed to be Jewish. Under pain of death. If you're in Spain or its territories, you are assumed to be a Christian. You're still keeping the laws of Moses, you'll be brought before the Inquisition. And don't think that the Inquisition has died down. Even though we're a hundred years now beyond Ferdinand's will. But eventually Holland becomes this nice Protestant Goetia country and it throws off the Holy Roman Empire throws off Spain. It's Protestant. Jews start arriving to take the waters. Now, of course, the first Jews to establish the community in Spain are Portuguese Jews. Because Portuguese Jews have been 
for the last century, basically, looking for anywhere where they can get to. And they get to Holland. So they establish the Portuguese community of Holland. But over the course of the 17th century, what we're going to see is that everybody talks about, oh, the Portuguese community of Holland, the Portuguese... Remember, these are people that did not come straight to Holland from Portugal after the expulsion of 1497. These are people... Or 1496 for, for Portugal. These are Jews that we're talking 100 years later. They're descendants who are also Moranos, but who are now free to express themselves. And Portuguese Jews who've been living itinerantly in other places start coming to Holland where they are offered not only religious freedom, but also commercial freedom to a large extent as well. Not complete equality, but commercial freedom. So they set up the community of the Sephardi community of Amsterdam, but we see over the course of the 17th century that that community is going to become exceeded by the Ashkenazic communities. By the time you get to the end of the 17th century, the Jewish community of Amsterdam is predominantly Ashkenazic. But let me remind you of something that I have said before in these talks. Please let me remind you. And let me set the record straight. Because there are still people in this world who believe in the mythology passed down amongst the white Ashkenazic socialist paratroopers that founded Israel that somehow Ashkenazim are cultured and wash once a week right and can eat with a knife and fork and use a flush toilet but the Sephardim just came down from the trees right I'm here to tell you that in the 17th century it was completely the inverse of that Sephardim were the cultured the educated the sophisticated the wealthy and there's a whole bunch of stinky gefilte fish eaters over here and they never even seen a bath and so, so, so when these great waves of Ashkenazic Jews start coming into Holland and coming into Amsterdam during the course of the 17th century, well naturally that's going to create some frictions and but eventually it all settles down. There's much greater harmony between the Jews, the Ashkenazic and the Jew, Sephardic Jews of Amsterdam than there is, for example, between the Sephardic and Ashkenazic Jews of a place like Hamburg. In Hamburg they even created separate cemeteries. You couldn't be buried in a cemetery, an Ashkenazic cemetery if you're a Sephardi and vice versa. But further west, there was greater integration. Now, there are many, many fascinating people that emerge from the 17th century community in Holland. Right now, I'm just going to talk about one of them. And I have to spend like two minutes on this person, but if we don't spend two minutes now, then it won't lay the groundwork for what's going to happen later on. <coughs> there are amazing figures that are significant in the early community of Amsterdam. Amazing rabbis. But from its beginnings, and because it knew it was in a very religious Lutheran country, and because they were there under great toleration, remember that Holland was the first country that had kind of allowed Jews to live there almost as equal citizens, that they had to be on their absolute best behaviour. That meant controlling their own community. Now, one gentleman arrives in Amsterdam. He's born in Portugal. 
and he eventually, but to a family of conversos that are still keeping Judaism and manage to get out of Portugal, actually they took uh, a whole lot of money with them and uh, people in Portugal were not happy about that, but they eventually got out and they went to, part of the family went to Hamburg, part of the family went to Amsterdam, classic places where Portuguese Jews, once they got out of Portugal, would go. Anywhere that there wasn't an inquisition. So if you're in Germany or Holland, which were Lutheran countries, or if you're in a Lutheran part of Germany, that was going to be okay. This person's name is Uriel da Costa. Now make no mistake, I could have spent the entire talk tonight just on Uriel da Costa. Seriously. So what I'm about to say in the next few minutes is seriously condensed. But we need to understand him as a figure of the 17th century. Uriel da Costa comes from Portugal. He's just arrived in Hamburg. He circumcised himself, or he got circumcised, like he's an adult, but he's only just now becoming properly Jewish. And he doesn't like what he sees. He doesn't like rabbinic Judaism. It's not what he thought it was going to be. Yes. In Hamburg. He's in Hamburg. He doesn't like what, because remember, I said, he's, he's, he, he goes to Hamburg. The rest of the family goes to Amsterdam. But he doesn't like what he sees. And he starts expressing these thoughts in various pamphlets. Ah, oh, you know what? Not so sure about these rabbis. I think they're making stuff up. I'm looking at Judaism today, and I'm looking at the Bible. It doesn't look like the same thing. So where do these ideas come from? Where do these ideas come from? For example, for example, the idea of the immortality of the soul. Where's that in the Bible? And I'll tell you something else about the Bible. I'll tell you something else about the Bible. Is that I don't think the Bible's fully accurate. Whoa, whoa, 17th century, dude. Calm down. So... There's a whole bit of a flap about it and the rabbis in Amsterdam and the rabbis in, uh, in Venice and in, you know, and even a shtickle in the Council of... They're not happy with this, so they said, we're going to excommunicate him. This guy's trouble. They excommunicate him. No, doesn't seem to affect him. Still carries on business. Carries on business using various pseudonyms and so on. And besides which, you know, if you're in Hamburg and they excommunicate you in Amsterdam, I mean, the Amsterdam had the printing presses and so on. But anyway, eventually he makes his way to Amsterdam because he wants to live in Amsterdam. And he starts publishing more tracts. And eventually he becomes completely isolated and excommunicated. You can't do this. The Jewish, but why can't you do this? What's the problem? What's the problem with saying something like there's no immortality of the soul? Who cares? I mean, ultimately, that's a big question we should all care about. But who ultimately? Why is that bothering people? Because the Christians were going to get upset by it. The whole Jewish community would come under immense pressure. What do you mean? What are you Jews running around challenging fundamental beliefs that we have in common? God, the immortality of the soul, these are things. We can't have your intellectuals starting this up. Like it's bad enough they read the Bible. You want them to read it like that? So they completely isolated him to the point where Uriel da Costa eventually could barely function. Remember. Remember, there is not yet any such thing as a secular Jew. It doesn't need, in fact, I'll go further. I'll say there ain't any such thing yet as a secular person. 
This doesn't. This concept doesn't exist. This concept doesn't exist. Oh, I'm going to go to uni and become an accountant. I don't really care about God. I'm just going to get on with my life. It doesn't exist. Now, so eventually, Uriel da Costa has to come back into the community, and he goes to the community, he goes to the rabbis, and he says, "Okay, I'll go through the motions. Right? I'll stop writing the pamphlets, and I'll just become a good boy, and I'll just let me back." Yep. So they said, okay, you're going to do repentance. He goes, yeah, okay, I repent. I'm sorry. And they go, no, 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 not simple. And so yeah. repentance is not like that. This is Amsterdam in the 17th century. You don't just say, I repent. First of all, we're going to give you 39 lashes. So he goes, no, 39 lashes. See what that does. So they lashed him 39 times in, the, in public. Then they said to him, and he goes, now, can I come back now? They go, yeah, just one more little thing you've got to do. Next Shabbat, you have to lie on the floor at the entrance of the synagogue and everybody coming into the synagogue is going to walk over you. After that, you'll be accepted. <laughs> no, well, we laugh about it, but he did that and the experience was so humiliating that within a month he killed himself. He did not survive that experience. Now, Uriel da Costa has become like a signpost for all kind of intellectual rebelliousness in the Jewish world. And it's very difficult without Uriel da Costa to understand the background against which Spinoza, who we're going to look at a little later in the course, is working. Also in Amsterdam, a very short time after that. Just to give you an idea that the Amsterdam community is starting to become very impressive, but they are still very, very much mired in the 16th century, in the 17th century. And it's I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes now, quickly, because um, I, I want to lay ground things so we can come back to them. And so when I come back to them later in the in the course, uh, you're going to be able to say, "Oh yes, that refers to that." We're not going to London. Why are we not going to London yet? Got no Jewish community in London yet. Right? Not until the second half of the century. But we can go to the Americas. Now I've got to tell you very quickly that Brazil was Portuguese. And that meant what? Huh? No Jews, Inquisition. Mexico was Spanish. What does that mean? No Jews, Inquisition. Now, if you think the Inquisition is a thing that was going on at the end of the 1400s and the beginning of the 1500s, how about the fact that a communal leader of a subversive underground community of practicing Jewish conversos of Moranos in Mexico City, a guy by the name of Thomas Travino Sobramonte, is burnt at the stake in 1649. I mean, people are going, oh, you know, the Salem witch hunts, they're still burning people in America in the 17th century. What about these Jews? Remember the big cry that Donna Grazia gave because they were burning Jews in Ancona in the 1550s? And we're going, they're burning Jews in the 1550s? In the 1640s, they're burning Jews in Mexico City. And I said this when we discussed the 16th. The Inquisition is off the scale for anti-Semitic persecution and madness. 
However, North America is a bit of a different story because what we now understand as New York didn't start as New York, did it? It started as New Amsterdam because it was owned by the Dutch. And they, so the first Jews, I mean, uh, some of you will know a little bit about early Ameri Jewish American history. And uh, we can't go into that in detail, even though it's fascinating. But if we were just talking about New York, and that is interesting, is the fact that, of course, um, Jacob Bar Simpson and Asser Levy, these are famous names. These guys are turning up as Ashkenazim. People think, oh no, the first Jews in North America were Sephardim. Maybe the first official established communities were Sephardic communities, but in fact, the first Jews to arrive were Ashkenazim. And they turned up in 1654. And they were followed shortly after by a famous group of 23 Jews that came from Brazil because they were in Recife in Dutch Brazil that then got handed back to the Portuguese so suddenly the Inquisition was in town and they decided they would go to North America and they rock up in New Amsterdam not long after Barsimson and Levy had turned up. So we have this very very nascent community but who's the governor? Stuyvesant. So Stuyvesant doesn't like Jews. Right? Big shock. And he tries to put restrictions on them. Now one of the restrictions was every burger, every, every person in the town, the, every person of means that was a, like, you know, a, a person, had to partake in guard duty. Yep. So Bar Simpson and Levy, it's famous, Bar Simpson and Levy said they wanted to stand guard duty and they got told no. You're Jews, you can't do the guard duty. And they go, why not? They go, because you're Jews. Now, if you didn't stand guard duty, it meant you had to pay a special tax. So they said, well, we're not going to pay the tax. We'd rather do the, we're offering, we're volunteering to do the guard duty. We want to do the guard duty. But if you won't let us do that, you can't force the tax. And Starvin said, I don't care. You're not doing guard duty and you're paying the tax. It's not my fault you're Jews. That's just what happens. That's what they, literally what they were told. And so in a famous case that you can read in the records, Barsimson and Levy went over Stuyvesant's head and had the Dutch West India Company instruct their employee, Stuyvesant, to allow these Jews to stand guard. That is the very, very beginning of the struggle for equality of Jews in North America that became a hallmark of, uh, of the fact that by the time, you know, a century later of US independence, Jews are basically granted civil rights from the word go. These are very, very interesting times. Of course, in the middle of the 1660s is when New Amsterdam got given over to the British and became uh, known as New York. And by that time, Jews are already arriving from Holland. They're going to go, oh, that sounds like a nice place. We'll go over there. But a boom. And slowly, 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 the Jewish population of New York is increasing. At first, almost predominantly from Dutch Ashkenazic immigrants coming over to New York. Now, in the last five minutes, I'm going to talk about one more place. I'm going to talk about it very quickly. I'm so pleased I've actually got through this material. It was quite ambitious, but I wanted to lay the groundwork of the concept of community because we've discussed Prague. We talked about Italy. We talked about uh, Frankfurt. We talked about Amsterdam. We talked about New York. 
Um, but there's one more community I just want to briefly talk about, and that is, because it's difficult to talk about this unless you have absorbed everything I've said till now, and that would be the community of Jerusalem. Now, as you would know, Jerusalem is in the land of Israel. And for about 100 years now, if we're looking at the middle of the seven, oh, no, 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 not 100 years, we're looking at the opening of the 17th century. What has Jerusalem had for the last 50 years or so? If you open up the 17th century, right just after 1600, and if you went to Jerusalem, what would there be that was only a few decades old? The walls. Not the wall, not the Kotel. That's been there for a couple of thousand years, but the wall. The wall around Jerusalem. Built by Suleiman the Great in the 1650s, in the 1550s. Now, Jerusalem, however, has undergone something of a decline, an economic decline, as was most of the land of Israel, because it no longer found itself in that corridor between Damascus and Egypt. And lots of goods and other shipping things are coming in from Europe and from the West as the world is opening up. So Jerusalem is a difficult place to live. Occasionally, you'll have people that go there to retire. But unless they rock up with independent means and enough wealth to get them by, they're not really, really wanted there. Every once in a while, you'll get a great rabbi immigrating there. We saw this at the end of the 15th century with Rabbi Vajra bin Bartanura turned up in Jerusalem. Well, here... In the beginning of the 1600s, a great rabbi turns up by the name of Isaiah Horowitz. Now Isaiah Horowitz, Rabbi Isaiah Horowitz, one of the most influential and great rabbis of the late, early 15th, early 16th, early, early 17th century, was born in Prague. Just to show you how big Prague was. Do you know who I'm talking about, Rabbi Grona? Of course you do, yes. He was born in Prague. And he very quickly became serious, serious rabbinic spiritual authority. So much so that by the age of 30, he's already sitting on the Council of the Four Lands. We have his signature on a document produced by the Council of the Four Lands already from the 1590s. It happens to be a decree of the Council of the Four Lands, by the way, that rabbinic positions in Europe are not to be sold. Rabbis can only be appointed on merit. You can't sell the position. Anyway, he eventually, so great that he gets a position as the chief rabbi of, he comes from Prague, I mean, that itself is impressive, but he gets a job as the chief rabbi of Frankfurt. And he's the rabbi in Frankfurt until the Fetmilch Rebellion. At the Fetmilch Rebellion, he, together with the rest of the city, is driven out. And instead of sticking around to find out what's going to be the next chapter in the story, he says, oh, that's enough for me in Frankfurt. I'm going to go back to Prague. So he goes back to Prague, and this time he goes back to Prague as the chief rabbi of Prague. So there's nowhere really left for him to go in terms of his career. And eventually, he decides he's going to go and live in Jerusalem. He turns up in Jerusalem around 1621, and he's immediately, of course, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. And then he's kidnapped by the Islamic rulers. We no longer have these benign Ottoman sultans ruling. There was the, the whole of the governorship of the Ottoman Empire by this stage had started to get corrupt and autocratic in local regions. And sometimes leaders of individual communities like the 
the, the spiritual leadership of the community of Jerusalem would just be kidnapped at a whim until the community paid a ransom to get them back. That also kind of disappointed him. So he left Jerusalem and he went to live in Tzfat and Tiberias. Living in Tiberias, where he is now buried, he wrote his famous work, which is called Shnei Luchot Habrit, the Shala, which is known as the Shalah. He's the Shalah HaKadosh, the Holy Shalah. Now, I can't, we've got time to go into the Shalah and what is in its texts, but it is one of the most influential works written in the last 500 years, and it covers everything, everything to do about Jewish practice, about, but, but understanding it on a deep and spiritual and mystical level about why we do the things we do. It's not a Shulchan Aruch, it's not a book of law, it's a book of L-O-R-E, it's a book of understanding about everything that we do and why we do it. Influenced immeasurably the Hasidic movement that came in the next century as well as all of the great spiritual movements across Europe. Now, at exactly the same year that Isaiah Horowitz turned up in Israel, another guy turned up in Israel called Baruch Mizrahi. Anyone heard of Baruch Mizrahi? Anyone seen Baruch Mizrahi house in the old city? Next time you go to Jerusalem, ask your tour guide to show you the Baruch Mizrahi house. Because Baruch Mizrahi turned up in Jerusalem in 1621 with a fair amount of, of money to retire and he bought a house. In his will, he stipulated to his children that they were never, ever, ever, them or their descendants ever to sell that house. And they never sold the house. They never sold the house. He said, you are never to sell that house. Why did he never want his descendants to sell the house? I kid you not. Why? This is in his will. Why? <coughs> Why must they never sell the house? Because in the resurrection of the dead, after the coming of the Messiah, he, when he comes back to Jerusalem, he wants to live in that house. <laughs> they must never sell it. Now, that went, exactly, so his descendants, they might have had tenants there, but they kept possession, documented possession of the house, right up until 1948. In 1948, the Jordanians took over the old city, yep, and they, you know, there were Muslims, uh, Arab families living there. In 1967, right, uh, the Muslim families were still allowed to live there, but it was recognized that they were the, that the, that the Mizrahi family were the owners. Then after 67, the Israelis, and as you would recall, demolished a whole area in order to rebuild the Jewish quarter. And they demolished the house. Wait. So they offered, they offered compensation to the family. And the family said, we are prohibited by our great, 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 going back 300 years, 400, 350 years, we are prohibited from taking compensation. You have to give us a house. So I think we can't give you a house, but what we can do is we can write an official contract, an official document. You're going to laugh, but this actually exists. And it is signed by every single Jerusalem mayor since Teddy Kolek. Officially promising the Mizrahi family on behalf of the city of Jerusalem that when the Messiah comes, they will give the family a house. 
Teddy Collick signed it. Teddy Collick signed it. Near Barkat signed it. And what was amazing is you can see a video when Uri Lipliansky signed it, when he was the Haredi mayor, he's like laughing. And I'm thinking, why are you laughing? Do you actually believe in the coming of the Messiah? Every single Jerusalem mayor has signed this to the Mizrahi family. Their lawyers go in. The first week the mayor is there, they say, re-sign this. Amazing. And he turned up in the early 17th century, exactly the same time as the Shalah, Kadosh, as Azar Horowitz. And uh, the other, the one last person I want to talk about, so that we can end on this, or I'm already over, but I just wanted to talk about the fact that Yaakov Tsemach, a Portuguese guy from a great, brilliant Kabbalist from a Portuguese family who eventually managed also to escape Portugal, went to Damascus as a young man and sat in Damascus for 18 years studying the manuscripts of Chaim Vital and eventually came to Jerusalem and opened up a Kabbalistic yeshiva. A, a higher advanced academy for the study of Kabbalah. Listen to this. This is not a random point. This is going to be very important for what's going to come. And his student, Mayor Poppers, so uh, Yaakov Tzemach, Yaakov Tzemach, and Mayor Poppers, Mayor Poppers' family, obviously from Europe, they sat, so in, in Israel already, the distinctions between Ashkenazic and Sephardim were blurred, but they opened up an advanced Talmudic academy in Jerusalem, where they edited and finally put together definitive editions of Vital's work. They weren't going to be printed for another century. They weren't printed until the late 1700s in Europe, but the definitive editions existed in manuscript already from the middle of the 17th due to the work of Tzemach and Poppers having spent decades with all of the manuscripts of Chaim Vital. And that, and that is going to be a major contributing factor to the unique conditions that are going to lead on to the great dramas that we have set the stage for now that we understand what is and where these different communities are. So thank you for listening to that. out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.